Welcome to the Radical Real Estate Podcast with Kuz and Kale. I'm Carl Kuzer with Lawyer's Title. And I'm Kale Thomas, broker owner of Elite Properties Direct. Hi. Hey, how you doing, Kale? Good. How are you, Carl? We, we made it back for another episode. Yeah, I know. It's been, we've been on a hiatus for a little bit. Yeah, well, we don't want to you know, fill too many people's minds with too much information. With too much mind control. <laughs> hey, um, before I forget, if you guys want to email us, you can do so at radicalrealestatepodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's radicalrealestatepodcast at gmail.com. Why don't you tell the people why we're doing this? Uh, all right, I will then. So uh, our, f- like, uh, how do I say that? Our vision, vision, vision for this podcast is to, to try to get ahead of current events before they impact the housing market and then have a debate about those topics and see what we can come up with, see if we have any insights. Um, so with that said, it, our guests, as we get going, we're going to have some guests on the show, but we're looking for other realtors, possibly some, some title reps. No. Okay. We have Carl. <laughs> Government affairs officials, the escrow industry, um, those from the home warranty industry, mortgage industry. Investors. Well, investors. But the show is also for, you know, Joe homeowner out there and Joan and Jane homeowner out there too so that I mean because they always have questions they may not be an expert per se but or a professional in this industry but they, they're a vest they're a vested interest they have a vested interest in what we do and what we're talking about yeah so that's a good segue into kind of who the podcast is for like you say homeowners investors realtors but really just anyone looking to have an understanding of what's coming up right in, right. The, in the real estate industry right um so i guess we'll jump into our uh, periodic check of the IYR ETF. And so last time we talked, we had talked about how the IYR is kind of doing this, for lack of a better term, healthy channel up off the bottom. Uh, and what I mean by that is we're having higher highs and higher lows. I mean, we're still waving back and forth like a normal market would, but it, the... Um, Why don't you explain what the IYR is for a new listener? Okay. Just briefly. I will do that. So the IYR is essentially an ETF that tracks the Dow Jones U.S. real estate sector. So uh, an ETF is an exchange-traded fund, which just basically means you can take anything that's trackable and make it trade like a stock. You can actually buy shares in this ETF. So would it be safe to say for the novice out there to get an understanding that really this gives an overall picture of what the real estate market is like, the, the health thereof it is and 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 to be clear it's not just residential real estate but it also looks at things like hotels commercial real estate new homes um but it does give us a general sense of how for lack of a better term how hot the real estate market is or are we near a high um are we bouncing off lows that type of thing it's just kind of a general gauge for the market yeah so since the last time we talked it's uh, definitely changed and it looks like that uh Around the first third part of March, it kind of took a hit. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. It took a little little bit of a hit. It seemed to kind of double test a a short-term bottom. So it kind of did this this double bounce off of 76.20 and kind of came back up to the midline of where 
Um, if we take the, the recent high and the recent low kind of bounced back up to the midline and it seems to be stabilizing there. So this is, I mean, for chartists out there, this is kind of a normal behavior that we see in a, in a market that's trending in a, in a direction or in a channel, so to speak, it is going to have highs and lows. And, um, typically a double bottom or a double top is a sign of rejection. And you can see these candles that, that bounce twice. Uh, to have these these kind of wicks at the bottom, meaning it, it tried to get down to that low and it was quickly bought up. Tried again to, to get down to that low, was quickly bought up, and then went up from there. So it was like, no soup for you, go back up. Yeah, get out of here. So that's the which is a good thing. So, yeah, it look, it looks healthy. And that was our last time we, we talked. We were saying we, we kind of thought everything, we were in a healthy market. The market was behaving itself. And I think we still see that, and this is indicative of that when you look at the chart. It's hard to see out there, obviously, for those that are listening. But, you know, coming off of a high, like Kale said, and it hit a, hit a bottom, and then it's, uh, you know, come back up moderately, and it, and it looks to be uh, progressing in a mm, positive fashion. Yeah, I, I would say so. I, I, I guess to say that another way, I don't really see any signs of a major correction downward as of right now. Which is a good thing. Yeah. All right. Well, that's our update. I think that's something, you know, especially for our listeners, like Kel, give the email address to all you out there. Um, if this is something that you're, you're interested in or if you've got some ideas on how we could present that better, because like we said, it's hard to see, but it is a good indicator of where we're at in the real estate market overall. And if you've got suggestions or say, I, I'd be open. How about you, Kel? If somebody had a different uh, mechanism and different vehicle that we could talk about and, and use as a marker. Absolutely. I, I would encourage that. Like if you think we're just dead wrong, we want to know, cause maybe yeah. you know something we don't know. Right. And that's the whole point of this conversation is let's, let's debate this and try to figure out, you know, all different sides of this. So, um, we don't claim to have a monopoly on the truth. You know, it's in this industry, especially it's, it's relative. It's what the market is currently doing and any speculation about what's going to happen in the future is especially, is purely that speculation right but there is one thing that we do know what's that we have low inventory right now we do have low inventory and it's uh not something to be alarmed about but let's talk about it there's so, a lot of reasons for it uh, so i i mean some of the obvious things the benefits would be higher prices for those who are trying to sell a home right now um, multiple offers, a lot of buyer competition going after your listing if you are in a position where you're selling a home. On the flip side, buyers are a little frustrated right now. Yeah, and that hurts the affordability factor. Yeah, affordability index is, is getting hit right now. Um, in our local marketplace, Minifee, for example, I'm I'm seeing homes under 350 really get gobbled up fast and multiple offers. They're not, they're not staying on the market that long buyers that need any sort of help, like closing costs to be paid or it just, they really are having a hard time. Sellers are just saying, no, take it or leave it. Mm -hmm. be because from the seller standpoint, they're like, okay, well, look, I've been on the market for three days. I have five offers. Three of them do not need closing costs and two of them are above my asking price. Yeah. So they don't, they don't have to accept those offers. They're going to make them pay, you know, take net more, net less. Right. So, so I, I guess something to, to be said, if you're a buyer in that marketplace and you, you are serious about getting something under contract, perhaps it, if you think you can swing your own closing costs, 
or there's some way that maybe your lender can help pitch in and you could get gift funds for the rest of the closing costs, whatever you could do to kind of figure out that situation ahead of time, I think it's going to give you a leg up on, on some of the other buyers. And unfortunately, that's just the market we're in right now. Um, and for, for the sellers, I mean, they, they really kind of have it, have it easy right now. It's really a seller's market. And, and every kind of piece of data that I've seen come out recently, and you probably see them too, like um, I get updates from Zillow and they, mm-hmm. they rate the market. Is it a neutral market? Is it a buyer's market? Is it a seller's market? And they're, they're calling it um, a seller's market. And they're saying that, you know, homes are selling for above list price and they're going in a matter of days and yada, 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 right. the things we've already talked about. Right. Well, I think for our real estate professionals out there, let's, let's discuss some of the factors that are probably playing into this or what we think might be the factors. And one thing that uh, comes to mind for me is I think that we have a lot of holdouts from the people that bought prior to the crash last time. Probably say people that bought at the end of 2004, 2005, six, and seven. I could be wrong, but I think a lot of these people are holding out because some are probably still underwater and aren't in the need to short sale. But beyond that, they want to get their money's worth out of, out of their property before they sell. So if there's still maybe twenty, thirty thousand dollars in equity, I think they're holding out and they want more. And they see and they hear in the news these uh, the, the appreciation home prices are going up. I think that's a consideration whether they they truly realize that or not. But it would make sense to me if I was still in that position, the home I used to own. I bought a house in 04. And um, if I was still in that house today, I think I would hold out a little longer. So I think that there's a lot of people that who otherwise would have would have sold. You know, and, and I can't speak to that to some degree because of the, the smart farms that I do. I see these these communities and where the overall average of the community um, the three-bedroom people sell on average seven years. The four- and five-bedrooms, eight, nine years. Um, or, you know, something, there's an average. And these people that bought in 05, well, they're going on 12 years now owning this property when the community average dictates that the average person sells after seven. So I think that speaks to them holding out, trying to get their equity position stronger so that they can sell. So I was talking to um, a couple of other industry professionals this past week. And I was posing the question, like why low inventory now versus last year? Like what's the difference? Right. And a point that was brought up to me was that, okay, we are in in a raising um, interest rate environment. Safe to say. Yeah. Like every intention is for rates to go up from here. So with that said, a lot of people that are in homes now may have rates that are in the threes. They may have a 15 year fix that's in the twos and they're, they're, they know they're not getting, they're not going to see those rates again for a long time, if ever. Right. And so they're saying, well, why would I sell? I could sell and get an extra bedroom or I could sell and get a pool home, but mm, I'd probably just rather take out a home equity line of credit and do an addition or just I'm just going to pay to have that pool done, even though I know I might pay a little more to have a pool put in myself versus buy a pool home. But my interest rate's going to go up. I have to pay closing costs. Uh, there's just so many reasons to keep someone in that home. So if they're debating, you know, if rates were 
higher a year ago and rates are going down, someone might say, well, look, I can, I could sell my home now, get all the equity out, buy a pool home, get a cheaper rate. It makes sense. That's not, we're in the reverse situation of that. So the argument was that, you know, not only are people holding out maybe to, to get un, get away from a, a situation where they're underwater, right. but, but those who are not underwater are saying, wait a minute, I've got a 2.75 fixed 15 year loan. Uh, I, I think I'll just take out a home equity line of credit for 40 or 50 grand and put it in the pool and I'm, I'm fine with my house. And, and to that point, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. Look at the prospect of when most people do sell in many cases, they're moving up. It's a move up sale. So exactly what you're saying, they're in a really low interest rate. So now they're in an environment where they're going to buy more house and they're going to pay a higher interest rate. The affordability becomes a, a factor for them. Yes. And, and what I see a lot of times is people don't maybe inherently get the numbers, but when we have this conversation about, hey, should I sell my home and buy this home down the street that has a pool and one more bedroom? When we put everything on paper, they're kind of blown away. Right. What? Whoa, my payment's going to go up. $800 a month? Really? Sticker shock. Sticker shock. So we are seeing sticker shock, whereas we maybe we're not used to sticker shock because money's been so cheap for so long. It, it, it's just really a, like a change in, in, in mind, a mind shift. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. That's an excellent point. Um, you know, it's interesting. I was um, reading an article, I think it was on NAR, and they said another contributing factor to low inventory is the fact that the builders really aren't building to the degree that they need to be. And because let's be, let's be honest, when there's new, there's a lot of new home construction, yes, that's, that's one side, but there's also the other side where they're selling their existing home to purchase that new home. And if building activity isn't where it's supposed to be, that would speak to low inventory because it's not creating that need to sell for their home builder's buyer pool. And I, I found that I was like, wow, I mean, cause around here we see it. I mean, a lot of Temecula Marietta is built out, but when you go to Menifee and to Lake Elsinore, my goodness, you know, Canyon Hills is a perfect example of what's going on there. But then Winchester and other places, we, we think, or at least to me, it's, it, it doesn't, it's not on par with what we saw in 2003 and 2004, but to me, it looks like there's a lot of building, but apparently not. And there's just not enough, I guess, to spur that other side to occur on the on the you know purchase of a new home. Yeah, it's a good it's a good point because you can drive around and see a number of new home signs and things like that. But when you do look at it on paper, and when they phrase it as "we're not building enough homes to to keep up with the um, growing number of people," you know, therein lies the problem. All right, good first half. We'll be right back. All right. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you, Carl. It's good to be back. Good to be. It's good to be here. So um, we, before our little break, we were finishing up the in, low inventory conversation. And um, I think there was a few other points we want to hit before we dust that off. Yeah, I think there's a couple topics that are worth discussion. And, and I think you'll agree is you had a lot of investor activity, especially with 
the market that is at the crash, you had a lot of investors buying, picking up properties. Yes. And I, from what I see and what I hear and in talking to people, they're not ready to sell yet. I mean, rents are going up still, and they're enjoying a nice return on that investment for a very uh, cheaply picked up property. They're getting good rent money out of that, and they're not wanting to give that up yet. When they feel a shift is coming, you'll see them. They'll start to sell those properties. So what, you know, I don't know if that's a false flag of an of a indicator of a, of a turning market if the investor properties start to turn over. I don't know. Well, I think you bring up a good point. If you're an investor and you're in an investment vehicle and it's working and it may be working better than you expected it to work and you don't really see a reason to get out, why would you get out? Don't mind being a landlord. Yeah. So I, it's a, I think it's a very good point. You know, it'd be interesting, maybe a future episode, get a property manager in here and, and see what their, their investors are saying to them. Yeah. Because that's a, that's a vehicle for, you know, let's be honest, a lot of property managers, they're, they're also real estate agents. Obviously, you have to be. Um, but they would have their finger on the pulse of, of that side of the market since, um, you know, they deal with them on a monthly basis at least. And, you know, when they see them flipping these properties, it's probably an indicator or a sign of things to come, I would think. I think so. And just to think a little bit behind the psychology of a, of an investor back in, let's just say it's 2010 and the market's at an all-time low. And you have a cash investor that comes in and says, well, you know, the stock market's obliterated and I'm not quite sure about it yet. And it's taking a bounce off the bottom, but I don't know. I want to diversify. I'm going to go into real estate. All I can really count on is what market rent is today in 2009. I can't really count on, or 2010, sorry. I can't really count on what rents might be in the future, right? So they're working all their numbers based off of 2010 rents. Now here we are, 2017, and rents have gone up significantly, and they're thinking, wow, that that's great. I had no idea rents were going to be this high. Let's keep it going. Yeah, I got a good thing going. Why sell now? Right. And then uh, I think one of the other things is uh, the – it's kind of – we, we were talking about this off air, and – it's kind of a self-perpetuating low inventory cycle and in, in, help me out with this, but part of the reason for the inventory shortage is that the move-up market is kind of being squeezed out. And so the potential move-up buyers aren't selling their existing homes, much like the um, potential buyers for new home builders aren't selling those because they're not building enough homes to have them purchase. The move-up market is being squeezed out, so they're not selling in order to move up. Thoughts? I think that's definitely part of it. And again, I it's that, I think it's all pointing back to rates. I mean, the more that I think about this, the difference between 2017 and 2016 or 2015 is rates are traveling up and the Fed's tone on the situation is that rates will continue to travel up. I believe that Janet Yellen's last comments were that they're on track for at least two more this year, um, and they're talking. You know, they're they're going to see how that goes. So they mm-hmm. may they may raise more. Now, if the economy takes some sort of weird shift, they may say, "Hey, things have changed, and we're no longer we're just going to hold. We're no longer going to raise." But you know, talk about self perpetuating this low inventory squeeze that we're having on prices could be a catalyst for the, the feds to say, look, housing's going up. 
and it's going up at an increased rate and we have a low inventory problem, we need to, we need to rein this in. Maybe we need to raise rates more or more quickly. Um, because it, it occurs to me in general, like the, the role of the fed is to regulate the speed at which the market changes. Right. And if the feds feel like the market's too hot, they're going to step in and start raising rates. If they feel like the market is way too stagnant, they're going to step in and lower rates to try to stimulate the market. So I, It'll be very interesting to see how this plays out and see how long this inventory stays low. And it's and it's weird because it seems like this time last year there wasn't an inventory problem. There wasn't. And it's, well, there there. I, I guess the definition of it, if there's an inventory problem or not is debatable. But they were saying there was low inventory last year, but this year it's literally it's, like we feel it. We feel it, and at times it's been like half of what it was the year prior. Meaning in my neighborhood, I watch it closely and I, there's usually about 25 to 30 homes for sale in my neighborhood. And at one point, a few weeks ago, there were, there were 10. Wow. That's a huge difference. That's, and, and you, and so you can, it's, that's tangible. It's tangible. And you feel it. Like you say, you feel it. You right. know, if I have buyers for that neighborhood and there's nothing, I don't say nothing, but there are, are a third of the homes for sale that there were a year prior or something like that, you, you know, you feel it in the, in the sense that prices are going up and. Um, homes don't stay on the market as long and buyers have to stretch more to, to get into escrow on those, on those homes. So I'm, but I'm really curious to see how long this lasts. Yeah, me too. Because something's got to give. Because, and it's weird because our market is kind of a, a microclimate compared to the overall Southern California market. Right. And it's amazing to me how quickly it changes, just like we were saying a minute ago, how this time last year, one feel, Fast forward 12 months, nine months, 12 months, and it's a completely different feel. And it Absolutely. just overnight, boom, here's a new market. And that's the that's the challenge for the real estate community, the professionals out there is, okay, you have to be an all-weather realtor in order to handle the changing market because it will change so quickly and fast on you, and you've got to adapt and be prepared for whichever direction it's going. I would totally agree. And the longer you stay in this business, the more crazy situations you're going to see. Like I'm in the back of my mind, I'm always fully prepared for a complete market shift of some kind that I have that kind of comes out of nowhere that I just have to deal with. So how, how, how would you describe that preparation? I'm, I'm curious myself. I mean, I know you're pretty good, but, and you, you are truly one of the professionals out there, but what, what is it about you that, that. How do you prepare for something like that? So for our, our other agents that might be listening out there, what, without giving away trade secrets, of course, I mean, what, what, what's, what's the, the secret sauce to being prepared, being that all-weather agent? I think it's being able to put your emotions aside and really say, what does this market need of me? Like, who do I need to be in this marketplace and then once you can define that, you can go, okay, now if I need to be that person, what actions do I need to take to be consistent with being that person? So for example, if you're in a, you know, back in 2008, 2009, um, who did you need to be? You needed to be someone that either was aggressively going after banks for listings or aggressively going after homeowners and helping them with short sales. You needed, you really needed to be one of those two people 
or perhaps you were an aggressive buyer's agent that was going after investors and capitalizing on the low prices. I mean, you you had to be one of those three, Mm -hmm. if not all three of those. And those don't necessarily work now in this marketplace. So um, I'm not saying don't be an REO agent. I certainly think if if you're serious about being an REO agent and you want to invest in that, you should still stay invested in that and create your relationships because the market will surely turn at some point. And that's the key. The the REO agent is all about relationships. I mean, you're not going to go out tomorrow, whereas you could go out tomorrow, be brand new in the business and be a buyer's agent all day long. Right. You can't develop those relationships overnight for REOs. No, it takes time. And I know a lot of REO agents now that they're supplementing their income with something else. Right. I mean, they're having to work standard sales and or perhaps their brokerage does loans or something else to get them through this time. Which is funny when we, you know, we both referenced facets of the National Real Estate Post. And that's one of the things that they were talking about was that um, the um, hist- um, foreclosures are at historic lows currently. Right. So the REO agents are having a, a, a tough time in supplementing their, their uh, business portfolio, business right. mix. So I, I think it's, in general, it's understanding what climate you're in now. Because there's different markets. There's REO markets. There's, um, you know, markets where there's, uh, like right now, we have a seller's market. So mm-hmm. listing agents are, are really enjoying this market right now. Buyer's agents are struggling a little bit. Uh, I happen to work with both. So I know that, you know, for my buyer clients right now, we're having a tough time. For my listing clients right now, it's great. Last year, I had uh, several listing clients during the summer period, and, and it was a little bit tough. You know, it wasn't this... Um, this low inventory market where we had buyers fighting over the homes. It was kind of like last year, it seemed like the feel was, all right, we've kind of gone up a certain amount and rates are still low. And we're kind of like just consolidating at this level. And no one really knew which way the market was going to go. And for whatever reason, now we have rates going up, inventory shortage, and then this optimism in the air that, that something crazy is about to happen and, and it may be towards an upside swing. So um, it's a very long-winded way of me saying you need to identify what kind of market you're in and then use the appropriate toolbox. And don't you can't go apply a default market toolbox to a normal market because you won't have good success. Oh. I would agree. And, you know, I, I deal with several hundred realtors in a given time and it's, it's funny that... Um, You've got the ones that are like yourself who are prepared and have that experience and can adapt. And then you've got agents that they, they know one or two things maybe, and that's, that's what they do, but they've got to work so much harder at that one or two thing. And it's, uh, it, it, I, my heart goes out to them because it, it's got to be hard, and you already alluded to that. It's just, it's just a situation where you really have to continually in this industry hone your skills learn new facets of the business, um, maybe do things you don't like to do. What, what's one thing that you can think of that you now do that originally when you started, you just absolutely hated doing it? Oof. Probably a lot of the um, like public speaking things, like not being afraid to get up in front of a group of realtors and share an idea, do, you know, doing what we're doing here. That's, that surprised me because you are good at it. I, but I wouldn't have done this six or seven years ago. Interesting. I just wouldn't have. 
So get out of your comfort zone is kind of the moral of the story. Yeah. I, I mean, for me, what how, all that started with getting into a networking group, a structured networking group that kind of taught me, here's how, here's some basics. Here's how you speak to people. This is what you want to say. You don't, you know, you want to, you, you want your message to be on point and quick and you don't want to um, use too many words and you just want to be clear in your message. And then you, you do that so many times, although it's weird and uncomfortable at first, and then you kind of get comfortable with that. And then it's like, well, if I could do that, I could probably speak to, you know, 20 or so people in front of a room. So your first step, in essence, is developing your what they refer to as your elevator speech. Yeah, that's part of it. And then expanding and, upon that. Yeah. From there, yeah. And after you, and you can't just do it once. I mean, you got to do it on a regular basis over and over and over to, until it's second nature. And that's when I think you have that breakthrough from uncomfortable to just like, this is just kind of who I am now. Right. And then once you have that skill, you can take it one step further. And so, yes, you, you I mean, as a realtor or as a anyone that's self-employed, I think you constantly have to push that barrier out and do things that you don't normally want to do. And I'm, I mean, I'm working on that this week. There's stuff that I just, I know I need to do, but I don't do it regularly. And so I'm trying to hone in on those things. What's just for, for conversation's sake or for laughs, maybe if it leads to that. What's the one thing you would suggest a realtor not to do? Oops. Not to do. I would say. Out, out, of, out, of, out of your famous mistakes that you may have made in your career, what's, what's, what's cringeworthy? Something you've done that potentially makes you like, oh, my gosh, why did I do that? Uh, something that comes to mind is don't badmouth clients. Don't badmouth clients because there's re, re, like why would you badmouth a client? Let's ask that question. And it's because well, you some difficult people. Out you want to feel, you know, like you get some sort of revenge against them because they wronged you or something like that. In in general terms, right? Right. But really, who who that's hurting is it's hurting you and it's hurting your reputation. And you certainly don't want other people thinking Kale runs around and badmouths clients. And, uh, you know, that guy must just be a jerk. Even if it didn't get back to the client per se, the reputation that you're establishing for yourself right. is one such that, oh, and look at I, him. Take this a step further. Even if you only say it to yourself. So that conversation lives in your mind only, right? You're tracking, yeah. you're, you're, t you're taking time to craft language to, to badmouth a client. I mean, that's just, that's wasted time right there. I think th the fact of the matter is there's just, there's actions and reactions out there. Some people have a bad day. They may say the wrong thing to you or whatever. You, as the professional, can't get caught up in that. And the longer you get caught up in stuff like that, the more it's going to take you off course from what you should be doing. And so I would say if there's one thing that a realtor could, could like internalize, it's to watch your language. And it, it's even language that you use with yourself when you're by yourself. I mean... How many conversations have you had in your mind about something that went wrong and you spend an hour festering over it while you're driving? Which you could have used that time. You could have called clients. Calls. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly where I was going. But with you that. festered for an hour and wasted an hour of your life having a conversation with yourself that's never, ever going to happen in person with this other party. I mean, it's just little tweaking those little things and get rid, getting rid of that stuff out of your life for me is so powerful, but that is, 
you know, you're a new realtor in this business and there's a lot of frustration that goes on. And you, you're probably tempted to have these kinds of conversations with yourself all the time. I know that I did when I started out. Sure. Even on my side of the I fence. couldn't let it go. I, you know, well, for what I do, I mean, it, it's equally the same, you know, in the title industry, not, not a real estate uh, professional in the sense of a licensed agent, but those conversations, I, I've had them too. And same thing, we could be calling other realtors or other lenders and we're stewing on, you know, our underwriter said no on something and this is a very good client and now we've got to break the news, but in the whole build up to telling them and I could be finding a solution, you know, okay, plan A didn't work. But as I'm stewing on the fact that plan A did not work, I'm not thinking about the positive sides of finding plan B or plan C. And sometimes, let's be honest, the power in solutions is the combination of, okay, well, plan A was wrong, plan B, and eh, not so much, plan C. But then how many times has this happened in your career where the final solution was parts of plans A, B, and C? Right. It, it, there's, there's, there's magic in compounding facets of ideas from different things that standing alone by themselves don't work. But when added as a combination to other solutions, do create the final solution that gets things fixed. That's the mindset we all as professionals need to have instead of, ah, that's stupid, blah, 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 blah. Right. And it's, it leads to nowhere. Well, it goes back to that, who, do, you, who <laughs> do I need to be in this situation? And I need to be someone that's looking for what's possible. Like I, I love that question, what's possible? Because if I'm stewing over something and I'm focused on the negative, I'm not being creative. I'm not asking questions like what might be possible here. And when you are being creative and are, you are asking what's possible of the situation, that's when you find solutions. And yeah. that's, that's essentially who you need to be for your clients and who you need to be for yourself in that moment that's frustrating. And that's where the magic happens. That's it. All right. I think that's a show. It, it is a show. We uh, we segued very nicely into some, I think, good stuff. I think so, too. And, uh, again, we want to make this better. We want to hear your opinions on these topics. If you think we're dead wrong, we'd love to hear from you <laughs> at RadicalRealEstatePodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's RadicalRealEstatePodcast at gmail.com. Who's any last words? Please be nice on any negative comments. Play nice, kids. Be nice to each other out there. That's a good word to live by. Thanks, everybody. Thanks we, for listening. We will see you next time on the Radical Real Estate Podcast with Who's and Kale. Peace out.